Okay, so this is going to be an NCLEX review for respiratory. We're going to go over the basic functions, um, some anatomy. We're going to talk about tidal volume and nursing interventions. We're going to go over some basic understandings of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve so we can understand how our patient presentation is going to affect their overall oxygen carrying capacity and how we're going to try to treat them while they're in the hospital. We're going to cover some obstructive and restrictive lung diseases and we're going to talk about specific nursing interventions for each of them. Okay, so the medulla oblongata is our respiratory center in the brain. In a normal healthy person, chemoreceptors monitor for changes in arterial CO2 concentrations and that in the CSF. So let's remember that in our COPD patients, the body works on a hypoxic drive. So the chemoreceptors in the aortic and carotid bodies are going to monitor the CO2 levels and O2 levels. So that's why it's super important to not have the COPD patients at 100% on pulse ox because these chemoreceptors are going to say, hey, we've got tons of oxygen, we don't really need to breathe. And then all of a sudden you have your COPD patient crashing on you because you thought you were doing them a benefit by having them on high flow too. So let's just remember to not do that for our COPD patients. So our respiratory system functions to provide O2 for metabolism. Think of oxidative phosphorylation that happens inside the cell. And it also functions to remove CO2. So think about acid-base balance and how hyperventilation is gonna help decrease the acidity by just breathing off all that carbon dioxide. The circulation to the lungs is your cardiac output, which is about five liters per minute. So the bronchiolar circulation, it gets blood from the thoracic aorta, and this is about eight to nine percent of the cardiac output. So this blood will return to the circulation via the pulmonary vein, which will lead to a slight decrease in the overall O2 concentration. So that's why the normal pulmonary vein O2 concentration is around 90. Man, okay, uh, sorry about those crackles. Let's see if we can't get that fixed. So the way pulmonary circulation is measured is usually with like a Swan-Gons catheter, and that will give you the uh, pulmonary pressure. And so the pulmonary pressure, normally it's a low pressure, low resistance area where you just have blood going through, um, passing by the alveoli, getting oxygenated, and then going out to the systemic circulation via the left ventricle. But some changes in there that we won't really touch much on here, but it's just kind of good to be aware of, is pulmonary hypertension. So there are three main categories where we can think about pulmonary hypertension. We can think about prolonged increased blood flow. So we can think in there, we can think of like a left to right shunt increased resistance in the pulmonary kind of vasculature. So in this area, we can think about pulmonary fibrosis, COPD, and kind of the decreased compliance and overall structural changes that come with uh, COPD. And then in the increased resistance area, we can think about hypoxic vasoconstriction. So initially there's a compensatory mechanism, but long-term Hypoxic vasoconstriction can lead to arterial or hypertrophy, and this will also increase the resistance. Just because as the diameter decreases, you're going to get an increase in 
resistance for the blood flow. And then the last one to think about uh, for pulmonary hypertension is an outflow blockage um, of some kind. So with this, you can think of like left ventricular failure um, leading to like increased back pressure because the left ventricle isn't pumping all the blood out, which will eventually lead to core pulmonal. So remember that the right ventricular enlargement due to left ventricular failure is termed core pulmonal. Um, also, other outflow blockage or obstructions would be something like aortic stenosis. So you have kind of a stuck valve or something that isn't opening all the way, and so the left ventricle is pumping hard to overcome that narrowing and the increased resistance, and then you'll get left ventricular hypertrophy. Um, we'll talk more about that on the cardiac review. And then also the last one to kind of think about to round out outflow blockage or obstruction is mitral regurge. So um, you, again, you have an, the incompetent valve as the left ventricle contracts. It's going to push blood back into the pulmonary circulation, and that'll lead to um, higher pressures there. So don't really think on NCLEX you'll get too many questions about that, but in practice it's something good to be thinking about. Um, just critically thinking anytime you see a change in patient condition. Okay, so let's talk about, got a little bit off topic there, but let's go back to our overview. So we did the circulation, we talked about the, the bronchial arteries, getting around eight to 9% of cardiac output, and then returning to the pulmonary vein. We talked about a little bit about pulmonary hypertension. Um, so let's talk about the anatomical features of our airway. The upper airway has the nose, the sinuses, the pharynx, the larynx, and the epiglottis and anything above the epiglottis which is our like leaf shaped uh, elastic flaps is termed the upper airway and for all you pre-hospital guys this is your domain for the EMTs uh, upper airway ends at the epiglottis the lower airways everything below that so you have your trachea your bronchi your bronchioles and then the alveoli and then when we're thinking about the lower airway just in terms of structure alveoli participate in the gas exchange but then we also have the type 2 cells in the alveoli that produce surfactant. And remember, surfactant is kind of the lubrication that keeps alveoli open. So yeah, that is the lower airway. For the anatomical locations, just talking about the lungs themselves, the bases of the lungs rest on the diaphragm, and the apex of the lungs are just above the first rib. The right lung has three lobes, and the left has two. The pleural space contains pleural fluid, which prevents friction and maintains integrity between the two pleural surfaces and also creates that surface tension that'll keep the visceral and parietal layer kind of stuck together. Um, and we'll talk more about changes in that when we get into pneumothoraces and then chest tubes, because that's how we're going to manage it for the big ones anyways. Um, so when we talk about breathing, we think of it in terms of the just in and out we call ventilation. And the average breath contains about 500 milliliters of air. The average person and the average breath is about 15 breaths per minute. So we think of this in terms of minute ventilation. So the average minute ventilation is about 7.5 liters per minute. And we'll get more into that 
when we talk about ventilator management further on down the line. When you're listening to ventilation over the trachea, you're going to hear bronchial sounds, and that's the high-pitched sounds over the trachea. As you move down the trachea towards the lungs, you get to the bronchi, where you're going to hear bronchiovesicular sounds. And then when you get out to the peripheral lungs, those are called vesicular sounds. So when you're charting or when you see a test question, you can describe them as normal by saying normal bronchial sounds auscultated over the trachea and normal vesicular sounds with no adventitious um, sounds heard. And so the adventitious sounds will be like your wheezes, your crackles, things like that. So the total tidal volume is the amount of inspired and expired air per breath. And then remember when we're talking about minute ventilation, it's about seven and a half liters per minute. And in the air that we breathe in and out, not all of that participates in gas exchange. So those are termed dead spaces. So this is the air in the bronchial tree that doesn't really reach the alveoli. Dead space kind of comes into play a bit more when we're thinking about, once again, ventilator management and all the extra tubing that uh, goes from their artificial airway out to the ventilator. And then with all of that extra space will cause an increased work of breathing, um, which is why when we get to weans and more, once again, ventilator care, we'll kind of go more in depth into that. So the normals for your average person breathing is about 12 to 20 breaths per minute. You're gonna see even and symmetrical chest expansion with no use of accessory muscles. So remember the accessory muscles you're gonna see around the neck and around the ribs. Um, retractions at the intercostal muscles, that's an example of an accessory muscle use. If you see them really flexing their sternocleomastoids, that's an accessory muscle use. If you see them like really, really just making a lot of effort to breathe, that's when you're gonna go ahead and notify your provider. So. How we, so how we monitor their respiratory status is usually done with a pulse ox. In most states, unless you're up at high elevation, you'll want to keep the person above 95%. Over here in like Colorado in high elevation states, you really don't start to get worried until they're around less than 91%. Then you'll notify the doctor. Uh, less than 70% on the pulse ox is life-threatening. So make sure you follow your agency's policies and procedures but we'll get more into the less than 70% when we talk about the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve uh, in just a few minutes. So let's talk about the last kind of way we maintain the normal, um, and that's going to be with an incentive spirometer. So the incentive spirometer, we're going to encourage the patient to breathe in slowly. Um, we're going to mark the point at the end of their inspiration, and that's going to be kind of the target that the client is going to breathe for about 10 times every hour. We're going to educate them to, when they breathe in, to hold their breath for about five seconds and then exhale through pursed lips. And the reason that we're doing this is because we're trying to recruit uh, those collapsed alveoli or open up those collapsed alveoli from a patient that's been laying supine or went down for surgery um, and is at risk for atelectasis. So yeah, that's kind of the goal and the use of the incentive spirometer. Okay, so when I was talking about pulse ox, I mentioned the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. 
So why is this important? Well, this kind of governs the affinity or the desire for the hemoglobin to hold on to the oxygen. And in some cases, like a shift left, there's going to be an increased want or desire for the hemoglobin to hold on to it. So kind of explain why we want to be aware of this with our patient who may be seemingly normal. So the delivery of oxygen to the tissues depends on the amount of oxygen that can be picked up in the lungs and then how easily that hemoglobin that grabs onto those O2 molecules is willing to give that oxygen up to the tissue when it gets there. So you can think of this as like, how greedy is the hemoglobin? And changes in temperature and pH will affect that just kind of like me when I get hungry. So the factors that really govern with or affect how the hemoglobin is going to bind to and hold on to the oxygen are the pH, you can think of this as CO2, and temperature. So a shift left is going to occur when there's a decrease in CO2. So you can think of that as an increase in their pH and hypothermic situations or a decrease in temperature. So I just think of this as low CO2, low temperature. And so in these scenarios, the saturated hemoglobin is going to want to hold on to the O2 and not release it to the tissues. So you'll have someone satting really well, but they're getting low tissue perfusion. So you're going to want to put this person on O2 to kind of compensate for that decreased release at the tissue level. So let's say you have a cardiac arrest patient who's being managed with therapeutic hypothermia per like ACLS protocols. This patient is going to need extra O2. They're probably going to be innovated, but they're going to be need extra O2 because we're keeping them cold, right? So they're not going to release the tissue. Or let's say you had a drowning patient, or I live up here in the mountains, um, and someone that comes in snow got hurt snowboarding, and they uh, were laying in the snow all day. They come to your ED unconscious. You're going to want that person to have supplemental oxygen. Okay, so that was shift left. Low temperature, low CO2, or increased pH with a decreased temperature. But I just like to pair things together. So a shift right is going to happen with increased CO2 and hyperthermia. So these are people with active metabolic states that are hyperthermic or high temperature and they're like their body's working really hard. So increased CO2 or acidotic state with a high temperature. In a shift right, the hemoglobin is less saturated with oxygen because it's gonna just give it away to the tissue because your body's working hard, you need oxygen to create energy, remember the oxidative phosphorylation, all that stuff that happens inside the cell for ATP generation. So your hemoglobin is just gonna be offloading the stuff like crazy to try to help your body compensate. With the shift right, the tissue is still gonna be hypoxic because there's less O2 bound to the hemoglobin, right? Because it's giving it away really easy. It's offloading all that oxygen means that there's less circulating O2 bound to the hemoglobin, so this patient is going to decompensate quicker. So shift left, shift right, you still want to put this person on oxygen because they're probably going to need it. Okay, so the patient that's probably needing oxygen we call hypoxic. So the causes of hypoxia are, there's a bunch listed on um, in the show notes, and if that'll help you review, then great. Um, or if you just like listening, you can follow along here. So the causes of hypoxemia are decreased inspired PO2. So you think of the partial pressure of oxygen is 
in alveoli at sea level is around 100 millimeters of mercury. As you go higher, the partial pressure is lower. So the person is going to have to breathe harder and faster when they're exercising because there's less available oxygen, because there's a lower concentration gradient for the oxygen to kind of like diffuse across the alveolar membrane. So decrease in the partial pressure of oxygen or high altitude um, can cause hypoxemia. Hypoventilation, slow breathing, it's pretty obvious. A shunt, so you can think of this as like intracardiac um, or atelectasis. So for the intracardiac shunt, you can think of like a septal wall defect or a patent foramen ovale or a patent ductus arteriosus um, for the people out there that are working in the pediatric world. Um, basically, we're talking about a change in blood flow past functional or non-functional alveoli, like as the case is with atelectasis. So you have collapsed alveoli, um, blood's passing by them, you have a physiologic shunt because blood is passing by them but not getting oxygenated, therefore hypoxemia. So decrease in the partial pressure, hypoventilation, shunt. Another cause of hypoxemia is going to be a VQ mismatch. So VQ, V stands for ventilation, Q stands for perfusion. Um, this kind of goes back to um, our atelectasis example, or you can think of something like asthma or vascular disease, or um, we'll get more into that in a little bit when we kind of delve into atelectasis. And then another problem or another cause of hypoxemia will be decreased perfusion. So a blockage of the blood flow to the alveole, I think of like something like a massive saddle PE or pulmonary vasoconstriction or acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, so on assessment, this patient will have an increased respiratory rate and increased heart rate. The first thing that you're going to see that should be your number one indicator for thinking just generally something's wrong is a change in their mentation. So is a person confused? Are they agitated? Are they restless? These are all signs that probably something is wrong and you should delve into that problem and then do a focused assessment um, and figure out what's changed. So the nursing plan for a hypoxic patient is if they're already on O2, then you're going to manually ventilate the patient. If they're not on O2, put them on a nasal cannula at four liters and then escalate cares as needed and notify the physician. But if they're already on high flow O2, then you're going to grab the AMBU bag or the bag valve mask and you're going to manually ventilate the patient at 100% O2. And if that isn't helping, this patient's probably going to get intubated. Okay, so we talked a bit about the basics of the respiratory system the functions of circulation, the respiratory center being the medulla, and then the anatomical locations. So now let's delve a little bit into the diseases and what you're going to see in the hospital and how you're going to get ready for test questions. We can think of lung problems as either restrictive or obstructive. And that's kind of how I've broken these things down and hopefully that helps some people out. So in obstructive diseases, We've got COPD, asthma, bronchiectasis, and cystic fibrosis. So these are obstructive diseases where the total lung capacity may either be normal or increased. And then we'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay, so let's start with COPD for obstructive diseases. 
So in COPD, there's a persistent obstruction of bronchial outflow. On assessment, you're gonna see just generalized weakness. You may see some accessory muscle use or dyspnea. You will probably hear adventitious breath sounds. So like crackles and decreased breath sounds are most common. And then you will definitely see ABG changes towards the acidotic. So we'll get a little bit more into that. The nursing plan for a COPD patient is you're gonna assess their ability to maintain their own airway, you're gonna listen to lung sounds, and you're gonna monitor their vital signs. Exacerbations of COPD are best treated with BiPAP, but you wanna be aware of your patient's overall condition because there are some relative contraindications for BiPAP and CPAP, especially if you have like a high PEEP, so PEEP is the positive end expiratory pressure, and that's used to recruit and open up alveoli. So as you increase the intrathoracic pressure, you're putting more, compre you're, you're compressing the inferior vena cava and you're restricting the, the return of blood back to the heart. So this can have a negative effect on someone who's hemodynamically unstable. So someone who has cardiovascular or hemodynamic instability um, is a contraindication. Someone who has copious secretions that can't really maintain their own airway is a contraindication for BiPAP and CPAP. And then with these COPD patients, we have to allow for sufficient expiratory time so that the patient doesn't develop what's called auto-peep or like stacking their own breasts and then we can in over-inflate the lungs to the point where we actually get barotrauma. So the nursing plan for these COPD patients, as far as medication is concerned, is they're gonna get a bronchodilator. And this will be probably a long-acting beta-2 agonist like salmeterol. And then remember, with the long-acting beta-2 agonists, we want to administer corticosteroids. Typically, this will be an inhaled corticosteroid because these drugs kind of help to reduce the swelling in the airway. So remember, the beta-2 agonist is only going to relax the smooth muscle. It's not going to do anything for inflammation. So that's kind of why we're giving the inhaled corticosteroids. There are some side effects that you want to educate the patient on, including um, a risk for weight gain, osteoporosis, and uh, diabetes mellitus. So these are all kind of things in the patient education that we kind of inform them about offer them the opportunity if they want it to say no to the medication because every patient has that right. Also, so they'll get a bronchodilator with an inhaled corticosteroid. Ipertropium is an anticholinergic that is sometimes administered and theophylline may be another drug that you may see. So you want to be aware of both of those. As far as patient education, um, we want to encourage these patients to use what's called pursed lip breathing and to use their incentive spirometer. Um, PT may do some therapy with them and they may be a candidate for postural drainage, it just depends, every patient is different. On questions and just in life in general, you wanna teach the patient about smoking cessation, not only for like the cancer reduction, but it also help limit asthma exacerbation, COPD exacerbations, anything that kind of irritates the airway and leads to like a bigger problem for them, we wanna help them stop. So we wanna encourage them to quit smoking, to reduce their risk of infection by getting vaccines if they're not up to date, to practice relaxation techniques like Tai Chi and yoga, to eat small frequent meals, and to conserve energy. 
So NCLEX loves to ask you about lifestyle modification, and especially for a lot of these like chronic or long-term disease states, uh, they really want to know how are you going to help this patient, you know, maintain the best life that they can. So really, those teaching moments are what you gotta really remember for uh, for NCLEX. Okay, so we talked about COPD. So let's talk a little bit about asthma. So chronic inflammation leads to a hyper response to a variety of triggers. Um, and this hyper response will eventually lead to airflow obstruction. And then on the airflow obstruction, you will be able to auscultate a wheeze or you may hear it from across the room. On assessment, the patient will have a rapid respiratory rate, probably some accessory muscle use, and they may have cyanosis. So you can look around the lips, that's circumoral cyanosis, you can look at their fingertips, you can check their capillary refill. Um, if they're going blue everywhere, they're in respiratory distress and you're going to want some help. So the way we help asthma patients predominantly is with the short-acting beta-2 agonist. So meds are the treatment of choice for asthma exacerbations. Um, albuterol is our most common one. And in high doses, this does have beta-1 stimulation. So if the respiratory team is in there giving your person some type of nebulized treatment, you're going to want to monitor this patient for tachycardia, and also you're going to want to monitor their potassium levels, especially if they're low. So albuterol is also used as a treatment for hyperkalemia. So this is going to move potassium from the extracellular space to the intracellular space. And if your patient is already on potassium protocol or they have a potassium that's 3.5 or lower, you're gonna to want to notify the doc and you're also gonna to wanna to pick that question on NCLEX because the beta agonist is gonna move the potassium inside the cell and then, then you may have some additional problems on your hand like their heart isn't beating anymore. And then the other treatment for asthma is salmeterol, just like our COPD patient. This is a long-acting beta-2 agonist. It doesn't control inflammation, and it really shouldn't be used without inhaled corticosteroid therapy. Asthma patients may also get theophylline, so just keep an eye out for that. Okay, the next two, bronchiectasis and cystic fibrosis. Um, you, I didn't get any questions on this. I didn't really spend too much time worrying about it. Um, just so you know, bronchiectasis is an irreversible airway dilation that can come from either an obstruction or an infectious process. The most common infectious agent is H. influenza. The treatment for that is going to be you're going to encourage hydration. This patient will probably have an IV. They may be a candidate for surgery. Um, once again, I don't think you'll really see this on NCLEX, so I wouldn't worry too much about it. Um, cystic fibrosis is a decrease in chloride reabsorption um, and a lack of phenylalanine lead to like thick mucus buildup and blockage of glands. So mostly this affects the pulmonary and the GI system um, and you'll get airway inflammation leading to edema and scarring and I doubt you'll see any test questions on this and you, I rarely see this unless you're working in like a pediatric pulmonary specialty clinic or something like that. So I wouldn't spend too much time worrying about that. What I would focus on is really getting down um, albuterol and salmeterol for your asthma treatments 
and COPD patients. Um, I didn't mention it there, but I probably should have. Uh, these patients are on, you know, the hypoxic drive. So, so yeah, ours in normal people, in the normally breathing patient without COPD or any kind of uh, pathology, um, your breathing is driven by central and peripheral chemoreceptors. And so these are going to detect elevated levels of carbon dioxide or hydrogen ions, um, and they're going to make you breathe faster to breathe off that waste. COPD patients have, you know, chronically high levels of carbon dioxide. And so what is the major driver of their respiratory system is their oxygen level. So if you have these patients at like a non-rebreather mask at 10 liters for too long and you have their sat greater than like 95% for too long, their body is just going to say like, eh, we've got plenty of oxygen. I don't need to breathe too much. And then you're going to code this patient. So don't do that. You know, the normal baseline is somewhere between like 90 and 93%. And these people are usually okay with that with like one or two liters on their nasal cannula. You don't have to get these patients up to greater than 95% because there's going to be a problem. Okay, so those were our obstructive lung diseases that you really want to focus on for NCLEX, I think. So now let's talk about restrictive lung diseases. Um, so these ones, we're going to have a decrease in total lung volume and especially like the total lung capacity. So the way that this is kind of broken down, and there's a really, really good book called Harrison's Manual of Medicine. There's a 19th edition out right now, and there's just, just a really good resource if you want to have some a small little book to keep with you to kind of review things. So the way this is broken down is you can think of outside of the lungs, inside of the lung. Where is the problem? For extrapulmonary restrictive lung diseases, we can think that these originate in the CNS, the chest wall, or it's a neuromuscular problem. So the CNS, we want to think of something like a head injury, opioid, and barbiturate use. So are they on drugs? Do they have a head injury? For the chest wall, we want to think of trauma or obesity hypoventilation system. So you can think of like flail chest, fractured ribs, or just a ton of adipose tissue, and this patient has Pickwickian syndrome. And then for neuromuscular, um, you can go back and listen to my neuro part two, where I kind of talk a bit more about these in depth. Um, but you can think of like a spinal cord injury, Guillain-Barre syndrome, ALS, myasthenia gravis, and muscular dystrophy. Remember, ALS is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So you can go back and listen to that neuro where I go and talk about the treatment modalities for those and the nursing care plan for those and what we're going to do for that. Um, so that was extrapulmonary. CNS, chest wall, neuromuscular. For intrapulmonary restrictive diseases, we want to think of like pleural disorders and then parenchymal disorders. Remember, parenchyma is just fancy name for functional tissue, so you're thinking of like the alveoli. Uh, for pleural disorders, we're going to think pleural effusion, pleurisy, and pneumothorax. For parenchymal disorders, we're going to think atelectasis, pneumonia, interstitial lung disease, ARDS, and tuberculosis. Okay, so we'll start with pleural effusion. So pleural effusion is just an excess of fluid in the pleural space and or a failure of the removal of fluid by the lymph. So you can have transudative, which is caused by a systemic infection, 
and you can have exudative, which is like a local infection. So you can think of like bacterial pneumonia or a viral infection. Okay, so that was pleural effusion, um, the two different categories for that. And we'll talk about treatment kind of after we go through a lot of these. So let's talk about a pneumothorax. So on assessment, the patient will have chest pain, probably shortness of breath, decreased breath sounds on whichever side is affected if it's a big pneumo, and they will most likely be agitated. Um, so there are a couple different kinds of pneumothoraces. A spontaneous pneumothorax is a rupture of a small bleb, which is a bleb is just like a small little air-filled blister. Um, and this can occur in a young, healthy individual or as a result of some type of lung disease. So like COPD, asthma, pneumonia, cystic fibrosis, something like that. But most oftentimes, a primary spontaneous pneumothorax is in you know, a healthy young person where they just come in, present the ED with like intense shortness of breath, and uh, there's really no other explanation. It's just you know, a rupture of this little blister on their, uh, on their lung. So another type of pneumo is a traumatic pneumo, and as the name suggests, it's from some type of trauma, like a penetrating chest wound. So you can think of like being stabbed or shot. Um, or they can get what's called the tension pneumone. So a tension pneumone is when you get a buildup of air or fluid on one side that kind of pushes the whole lung over towards the opposite side. And as you get compression on that mediastinum, that's where you start to see you know, cardiovascular complications along with the increased shortness of breath. And then one way you can see this just from your physical assessment is you may see tracheal deviation. So that's the lung is being pushed to the opposite side of where the pneumo is. So pneumos are treated with a chest tube. A pneumothorax as opposed to a hemothorax, the pneumo is going to get a chest tube at the second intercostal space at the mid-clavicular line. And then this will get hooked up to suction, usually to 20 centimeters of water in the chest tube, and probably up to wall suction as well. For a hemothorax, so remember air is going to float and liquids are going to sink. So the blood in the pleural space is going to settle down towards the bottom. So these people are going to get a chest tube at the fifth intercostal space at the anterior axillary line. So just on the side towards the armpit, um, a little bit on the anterior aspect down at the fifth intercostal space. The main thing to remember with chest tubes is you're never, never, never going to clamp them. If you see that on a test or you walk into a patient's room and they, you know, folded their little chest tube over and put the blue clamp on there, you're going to select that answer and you're going to unclamp the patient's chest tube. Uh, the normal sizes for an adult is around a 28 to a 36 French and for the child is going to be around an 18 to 24. Okay, so the nursing plan for the patient with a chest tube. Pre-insertion, you're going to make sure you have large bore IV access, that you've got airway supplies, and maybe the procedure cart close by, just in case you have to intubate this patient. In a hemodynamically stable patient, you're going to pre-medicate this person before you do it. It's usually going to be an order for something like 4 milligrams of IV morphine, just because you're putting in a huge tube and you want to make sure that they're you know, adequately medicated for the pain they're about to experience. For insertion, you're going to elevate the head of bed around 30 degrees and you're going to position them with the affected side up because that's where the tube's going to go in. So the doc is going to create an incision, he's going to insert the tube, and then he's going to uh, suture it in place. So hopefully the patient doesn't, you know, yank it out because that would not be good. 
So during this, you're going to monitor for a vagal response. So decreased heart rate, decreased blood pressure, and decreased level of consciousness. Just because you're putting in a huge tube in there, the patient may bear down. And then remember the vasovagal reflex. As they bear down, it's going to stimulate the parasympathetic system and then everything's going to start to go downhill. So you just want to watch for that. And, you know, you're going to monitor their respiratory rate as you're medicating them for this procedure. It will most likely get hooked up to wall suction, and this is going to be usually set to low intermittent suction around 80 to 120 on the wall. But check with your facility protocol. And while this patient has the chest tube in, you're going to encourage them to change positions frequently. You're going to make sure that the... Drainage system is always below the level of the insertion site. And then you're going to monitor for constant bubbling because that means there's a leak in the system. So on the bottom left side where the water seal chamber is, if you see constant bubbles in there, that's like bad. Um, so you're going to want to check for a leak somewhere in the line. Start at the patient and work your way back down to the containment system, checking every connection. Um, a gentle bubble is expected though on insertion because this is just the air leaving the pleural space. So a little bit of bubbles is good, a lot of bubbles is bad. If the chest tube gets dislodged or pulled out and you happen to be in the room at the time, you're gonna apply direct pressure over the insertion site with a gloved hand. Um, if it just gets disconnected from say like the Pleurivac system or whatever you happen to be using, um, you're gonna put it the end of the tubing in sterile water until you can get a new system set up. Okay, so removal of the chest tube, again, check with your facility protocol, but it's usually with like, when there's less than 200 milliliters um, output in 24 hours and there's no air leak, you're going to pre-medicate this patient. Again, it's usually around four milligrams of morphine IV. You're gonna clamp the chest tube and you're gonna remove the dressing and sutures. Before you pull it out, you're going to ask the patient to Valsalva or to bear down like they're taking the dump, and you're going to pull out as you're doing this. So bear down, grab the tube, pull it out, and have a Vaseline gauze ready. If the patient is on a ventilator, um, you're going to pull at the end of the inspiration on the vent and then cover the, cover the wound with uh, Vaseline gauze. And then you're going to order a chest x-ray. Okay, so we talked about pleural effusions, and pneumothorax. So let's talk about atelectasis. We can think of atelectasis in two kinds of categories. It's going to be caused either by compression or absorption. For compression, there's like some type of outside source putting pressure on your lungs leading to a collapse. So this can be, you know, like a pneumo like we just talked about, or a tumor, or abdominal distension. You should get that patient up and walking if you can. Um, Edema, just generalized edema, and then you also interstitial edema. So that's going to like compress the alveoli and not allow them to participate in gas exchange. And then the other one is absorption. So a, some type of a blockage is going to lead to collapse of the alveoli just from like air diffusing out. Uh, so causes of this include cystic fibrosis, pneumonia, and anesthesia. So when you think about anesthesia, you can think about like someone who has had surgery who doesn't really want to get up and cough, especially someone who's had like abdominal or thoracic surgery and the pain associated with getting up and coughing. Um, also prolonged bed rest after surgery, 
um, can lead to like a pooling of those secretions in the dependent area of the lungs. Um, and this will decrease ventilation to those areas. So that's why we use the incentive spirometer to kind of get them to open up those collapsed uh, alveoli. Okay, let's talk about another parenchymal restrictive disease, pneumonia. Um, so pneumonia, on assessment, the patient will have fever, leukocytosis, and probably a productive cough. The nursing plan for the patient with pneumonia is you're going to assess breath sounds and O2 saturation. You're going to encourage the patient to turn, cough, and deep breathe at least every two hours. And while they're doing this, they should be using their incentive spirometer to increase the alveolar recruitment. Um, you're going to assess vital signs every four hours. Um, you're going to administer antibiotics per the, um, your provider's orders, and you're also going to suction this patient as needed. Okay, let's talk about acute respiratory distress syndrome. This is a manifestation of an acute injury to the lung. This is commonly from something like sepsis or trauma or severe pulmonary infection. Clinically, what you'll see in the patient is dyspnea, profound hypoxemia, decreased lung compliance, and diffuse bilateral infiltrates on um, chest x-ray. ARDS is classified from mild, moderate, to severe. So the development of acute dyspnea and hypoxemia within 24 hours of the inciting event is, that's your kind of classification of ARDS, right? There's a formula that will tell you how severe this is from like mild to severe. So on their ABG, you'll have their PaO2 and you're gonna divide that by how much oxygen they're getting. Usually these patients are intubated. So you're gonna take the PaO2, you're gonna divide that by their FiO2 and that'll give you a number. Anything less than 100 is severe ARDS. From 101 to 200 is moderate ARDS and proning these patients for greater than 10 hours significantly decreases their mortality. And mild ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome is a number between 201 and 300. So that's when you divide the PaO2 by the FiO2. There are three phases in ARDS. So you have your exudated phase, which is within the first 72 hours of injury. Um, this patient will have a rapid respiratory rate and increased work of breathing, but their O2 levels are still like within normal limits. There's the fibroproliferative phase where type two alveolar cells, these are the ones that create the surfactant, they start to die. So without the type two alveolar cells and the decrease in surfactant, you're gonna have a decrease in your oxygen exchange and you're gonna have um, a physiologic shunt. So you just want to monitor for that. And then you get into the resolution, which occurs weeks to months after the insult where oxygenation improves, the chest x-ray clears, and compliance increases and peak airway pressure decreases. If you're working in the ICU or you wanna move into critical care, you want to be aware of ARDS intubation protocol and lung protective strategies. So this is where the you have a lower tidal volume at a higher rate and the lower tidal volume is usually between 4 and 6 milliliters per kilogram of ideal body weight 
and this is termed the lung protective strategy. Also, your ARDS patient may have neuromuscular blocks and may be prone positioned. Um, so yeah, just uh, keep an eye out for future podcasts on those if you're interested in that. Okay, so going back to, um, kind of got a little bit off track there, but going back to restrictive lung diseases, um, tuberculosis is the last one, well, not the last one, but the next one on the list for um, just general review and NCLEX review. So tuberculosis is in the respiratory system and is usually a lower respiratory infection of the mycobacterium tuberculosis. This is transmitted via droplets, so you want to make sure you're on that precaution. Um, in tuberculosis, macrophages engulf the bacilli and T-cells form uh, fibrotic tissue around it, and it's called a tubercle. Going back to micro, if you guys remember that. So signs and symptoms of tuberculosis that will definitely be there on text, test questions and patient presentation. I've seen quite a few people that met these triggers and went on necessary precautions just until we ruled it out. So um, signs and symptoms of tuberculosis is fever, shortness of breath, and night sweats with a productive cough. Night sweats are usually the key thing here um, with shortness of breath and other flu-like symptoms. And especially if they have a productive cough, you're gonna get a quantiferum test and active TB is diagnosed by positive sputum cultures. So remember R-I-P and E. So RIPE or RIP, depending on how you like to remember it, is the treatment modalities for tuberculosis. So that's rifampin, isonazid, and pirazinamide. I probably butchered those, but that's how um, they kind of look to me to be pronounced. Um, never given these yet, so I will wait for pharmacy to correct me when I call down for it. Also, vitamin B6 is given with isonazid um, as a neuroprotectant. Okay, so that rounds out TB. Just remember, fever, shortness of breath, and night sweats with a productive cough. You want to put this patient on precautions and uh, make sure that everyone is following that until you've ruled out TB. So the next one in intrapulmonary restrictive diseases is going to be a PE. Okay, so we're talking about pulmonary embolism, but the way these present is with chest pain, cough, dyspnea with tachycardia. Um, just they can be kind of vague symptoms, inability to like catch their breath. So you keep your differential mind kind of open. One of the best ways to rule out a PE other than imaging is to get a D-dimer. Anything less than 500 micrograms per milliliter is used to rule out a PE. So that's going to be one of the physician's diagnostic tools that if they haven't ordered, you're going to ask them to order it for you. Okay, so the treatment um, is going to be unfractionated heparin, uh, around 80 units per kilogram for the loading dose, IV. And then you're going to follow up with around 18 units per kilogram per hour, titrated to a decent PTT, and then this patient is going to go on warfarin for long-term suppression. And if they have refractory PE, they'll probably be a candidate for placement of an inferior vena cava filter. So just keep an eye out for that if you get this on a test question or you see a patient come into your unit like this. Okay, so that's PE. Um, we'll talk about ventilator management, um, indications for ventilators, and 
trachs and all that stuff in a different podcast, but I think that should be pretty good for now. So remember that the functions of the circulatory system is to provide O2 and remove CO2. Remember acid-base balance. There's about 5 liters per minute that circulate through the lungs. So the lungs are fed both by the, by the pulmonary circulation and also by the bronchiolar artery circulation. The upper airway consists of the nose, sinus, pharynx, larynx, and epiglottis. The lower airway starts just below the epiglottis and goes down from the trachea to the bronchi, bronchioles, and then down to the alveoli. The lungs rest on the diaphragm and the apex is just above the first rib. The quote-unquote normal minute ventilation is about 7.5 liters. And this is based off an average breath of about 500 milliliters and breathing about 15 times per minute. You want to instruct your patient how to use the incentive spirometer. And then if you have a hypoxic patient, you want to consider the altitude. Are they hypoventilating? Is there a shunt, either an intracardiac or intrapulmonary shunt? So thinking of like a hole in the heart in one of the septal walls or a patent foramen ovale. If you're dealing with the pediatric population, you want to think of atelectasis. Um, does this patient need to use their incentive spirometer more? Do, could they benefit from some CPAP or BiPAP with some PEEP to increase their recruitment? Is there a VQ mismatch? So thinking asthma, again, alveolar disease or maybe vascular disease. Do they have a PE or is this an ARDS patient? Um, your hypoxemic patient is going to have increased respiratory rate, tachycardia, confusion, and then remember the confusion, restlessness, agitation. Those are going to be early signs. Your nursing plan for the hypoxic patient is get them oxygen somehow. And if you already have them on high flow, get ready to innovate. You have your obstructive diseases, COPD, asthma, cystic fibrosis will be the main ones. So you can go back and listen to those if you forget the nursing plan or assessment or teaching points. We went over the pharmacotherapy for asthma, including albuterol, salmeterol, and theophylline. Remember that you're going to want inhaled corticosteroids with theophylline and salmeterol, your long-acting beta-2. Um, for our restrictive lung diseases, we were thinking about decreased total lung volume or total lung capacity. So either outside of the lungs or inside of the lungs. So outside we had drugs that affect the CNS, so opioids and barbiturates, or a head injury. Um, again, outside the chest, we had chest wall abnormalities like flail chest, fractured ribs, obesity hypoventilation or Pickwickian syndrome and then we also had the neuromuscular ones so like spinal cord injury or Guillain-Barre, ALS, myasthenia gravis or muscular dystrophy and then we went inside the lungs and we started thinking about pleural disorders and then parenchymal disorders so the pleural ones were like pleural effusion, pleurisy or pneumothorax and then we had the parenchymal or functional tissue one where we had atelectasis, pneumonia, interstitial lung disease, ARDS, or tuberculosis. And then so you can go back through and try to remember those and study hard for the test and have a good week.